Welcome to episode 4 of House of Tudor. If you haven't already, please give the podcast a follow and review on whatever platform you listen on, and check out our Instagram page, House of Tudor Podcast. Previously, we looked at the second decade of Edward IV's rule. We began to explore some of the internal politics which defined his reign and would be fundamental in ultimately seeing Henry Tudor crown king. This time, we'll be focusing on the weeks following the death of Edward IV and the rise of his tyrant brother, Richard III. To explain why and how an obscure and technically illegitimate Welsh family came not only to the foreground of English politics and nobility, but to rule the Kingdom of England, we need to go back to the turmoil, politics and conflict which facilitated their power grab. We need to chart their progress and contextualise their rise to power. To do this, we'll be winding back the clock some 35 years from the infamous Battle of Bosworth Field to examine the bloody, intimate and ruthless conflict we know as the Wars of the Roses. Welcome to House of Tudor. Historians writing about Richard III have typically fallen into two categories. There are those that believe Richard guilty of murdering the princes, but are too cautious to draw any concrete conclusions. And there are those that practically worship him. What makes evaluating not only the cases of the princes in the Tower, but also the reign of Richard III as a whole so difficult, is the sheer lack of sources. The main collections of letters, including the Pastant letters which this miniseries has touched on before, refer to Richard's usurpation of the throne less than a dozen times. Mancini, who has also cropped up a number of times in the past few episodes, is the author of one of the two main contemporary narrative works on Richard. He is painfully objective, almost always relaying and recounting fact and event. His book, The Occupation of the Throne of England by Richard III, was written to inform the Archbishop of Vienna on the English affairs. Incredibly, Mancini's book was lost for 450 years. Though the book is lacking in dates and exhibits an ignorance of English geography and general detail in places, it serves as a fantastic window into the reign. The second major source is the second continuation of the Croyland Chronicle. According to its author, the work was written in the 10 days leading up to the 30th of April 1486, and concludes with the marriage of Henry VII and the Northern Uprising of that year. Though Edward IV, in Thomas More's words, left this realm in quiet and prosperous estate, and had died wealthy, powerful and esteemed. He had undermined his son's peaceful succession. At the centre of power following his death, the Woodvilles and Richard, the Duke of Gloucester, were bitterly at odds, and it dawned upon many that England was once again entering into a period of great uncertainty. But before we delve into what transpired, it's important to see how Richard got to this point what decisions he made, and the type of person he was. Richard Plantagenet was the youngest son of the Duke of York, and was born on the 2nd of October, 1452. Despite the tales of Richard's deformities being grossly exaggerated, it goes without question that in his early years Richard was a weak child, but he survived the perils of childhood and spent much of his younger years in the company of his elder brother George, and in the care of his mother at Fotheringay Castle. Following Edward's succession in 1461, Richard was created Duke of Gloucester, and was dispatched to the Earl of Warwick's household to receive his education. Here, Richard's companions included the Earl's daughter and his ward, Francis Lovell. Richard learned the arts of war and knighthood, 
coming to grips with the skills expected of a nobleman and prince. During the 1460s, Edward did little for his youngest brother, devoting much of his energy and patronage to George, by now the Duke of Clarence. But when Warwick betrayed Edward in 1469, it was clear that the Duke of Gloucester, who had been sidelined, had stayed loyal, where the Duke of Clarence, ever favoured, had rebelled. Richard was appointed Lord High Admiral, Chief Justice of the Welsh Marshes, and Chief Constable of England. Upon him were also bestowed officers in Wales and the Duchy of Lancaster. Richard followed Edward into exile in 1470, and upon Edward's restoration, was further endowed with officers and rewards. The childhood and formative years of the future king were overshadowed and defined by the conflict, civil war and politics in them. He was only eight years old when his father and brother were killed in battle by the Lancastrians. Gloucester himself first saw battle at Barnet in 1471, acquitting himself well in leading the vanguard. He displayed the same tenacity and aptitude for war at Tewkesbury. Following Tewkesbury, Richard made the first decisive action which would earn him a reputation for ruthlessness even before he deposed his nephews. As High Constable of England, Richard could summarily execute without trial all witnesses in the knowledge the full weight of the law was behind him. In this light, after the battle, Richard executed the last Beaufort Duke of Somerset and other Lancastrians, many of whom were forcibly removed from sanctuary. Gloucester has also been tied to the death of Prince Edward of Lancaster. Less than a month later, Henry VI would be dead, and many believed it to be by the hands of Richard. Mancini, writing in 1483, testified to the notoriety of Richard's ambition and cunning, and many had misgivings about where they would lead. But Gloucester was also popular, able, hard-working, and conscientious to his duties. Richard had inherited some of the charisma Edward is so often accredited with. Of the contemporary references to Richard, including the Croyland Chronicle, no mentions are made of Richard III having any deformities. Of course, just as portraits of the period flattered the patron, or at least they did well to avoid highlighting any unwanted characteristics, so chronicles or contemporary documents may have done the same in regards to Richard's spine. When you mention Richard III to most people, the first thing they will say is, oh, he was the hunchback. With the clouded view of Richard's deformities, it has been impossible to comment conclusively on the matter. But on the 24th of August 2012, the University of Leicester and other patrons announced they were engaging in an archaeological search for Richard's body. The excavators announced that on the 5th of September that they had found Greyfriars Church. One week later, they found Richard's body under a car park. Nearly 530 years after his death at Bosworth, Richard III's body was finally able to be examined. Richard's spine was curved and it was confirmed that he had scoliosis. If you want to know more about Richard's condition, I would recommend a Stephanie Pappas article from 2014 in Live Science, which goes into detail about the spinal curvature, how it may have been treated, and how it would have affected him. On the 11th of April, 1483, Edward IV's eldest son was proclaimed King Edward V in London. Edward himself was 200 miles away at Ludlow. Only one of Edward IV's wills survive, and is from eight years before his death. In it, no provisions were made for a minority, but when he was on his deathbed, Edward IV either drew up an entirely new will, or made amendments to the first one. Gloucester was named Protector of the Realm by, as one contemporary words it, Edward's deathbed ordinance. 
Other sources support this, and it would seem Edward IV did genuinely intend for Richard to rule until such a time as his son was of an age to rule independently. Importantly, Lord Rivers, of the Woodville family, was to be removed from his office of governor, and the Queen was stripped of all the powers stipulated in the first will. These last two changes were likely made on the grounds that Edward finally realised that the Woodvilles were the most detested part of his rule. Looking to mitigate any risk they might pose to his son's reign, Edward decided to curb their power and prominence. Whatever provisions Edward had rushed through before his death in March 1483, the Queen and her supporters held sway over the court, and Rivers had the young king in his charge. The Woodvilles were firmly entrenched at the heart of the new regime, and were intent on resisting all attempts to make Gloucester Lord Protector. The Woodvilles made legal moves to block Richard's protectorship. They looked to historical precedent to thwart Gloucester. In 1429, the Lord Protector for Henry VI, his uncle Humphrey, stepped down from the job as soon as the Boy of Seven had sworn to protect and defend the church and his realm at his coronation. For the Queen and her faction this was gold dust. Edward V was 12 years old, and there was no reason why he couldn't be crowned immediately. The date was fixed for the 4th of May 1483, and the King was invited to London at once. The Queen demanded an army of soldiers escort her son to London. This was too much for Hastings, who threatened to retire to Calais, where he was governor. He could see bloodshed on the horizon, and his anger prompted the Queen to accept a smaller escort for the boy King. Hastings was keen to carry out Edward IV's will and was deeply perturbed by the Woodville line of action. Whilst all this was happening, Gloucester was in Middleham Castle in Yorkshire. The Woodvilles had intentionally withheld the news of his brother's death from him, and upon discovering this, Hastings was left to write to the Duke after a great delay. He encouraged him to ride to the capital with all haste to right the wrongs the Woodvilles were doing to him and to the realm. Meanwhile in Ludlow, news reached Edward V of his father's passing and of the call to London. His uncle, Lord Rivers, was in charge of the boy and had planned to celebrate St George's Day at Ludlow. Needing to raise the 2,000 men for the King's escort, Rivers saw no need to make any haste. After all, his kin in London had the whole situation firmly in hand. The news of the Woodville's plot concerned the Duke of Buckingham also. As one of the greatest magnates, but an infant with no guardian, the Woodvilles had taken him as their ward. The Queen had even married the Duke to her sister. Buckingham was outraged at having been betrothed and then married to a woman so far below his station. Nonetheless, he had gritted his teeth and gotten on with it. In 1483, Buckingham was concerned for a couple of reasons. Firstly, he perceived that if he did not act urgently, he may well be ousted from power by the Woodvilles. He even feared for his life as a royal duke. This status offered him less protection than ever, all too aware of the fate of the Duke of Clarence. Certainly, Richard felt the same, holding the Woodvilles responsible for the death of his brother George. If Richard wished to retain his vast swathes of land in the north, an amicable relationship with the young king, and his own power and security, he had to see to the overthrow of the Woodvilles. Whilst later writers were confident the Duke was in no great danger, contemporary circumstantial evidence suggests that the Woodvilles posed a real threat to him, and that he believed his political and personal survival were in jeopardy. Gloucester wasted no time in initiating his coup. He wrote to Hastings, Buckingham and others, warning them that they were in danger whilst the Woodvilles were in possession of the King. He wrote to many Northern Lords and asked them to meet him at York on the 20th of April. To all of those aware of the plot, it looked as though Gloucester was planning the political destruction and removal of the Woodvilles. To Mancini, Virgil and later Thomas More, Richard was out for the throne from the beginning. What I see 
is a man devoted to the memory of his brother, stocked up with years of hostility with the Woodville family, determined to do his duty. He was employing his years of military decision making and reorientating it into the political arena. Through this, the Duke was to prove lethal. To the Queen and Council, Richard played the mourning brother and acquiesced to their demands, convincing them of his honourable intentions. Though Richard asserted to the Council in a formal letter that he was bound unto the law and duty and that the decrees of the dead King must be obeyed, Richard openly demanded the protectorship of them. Despite this, a dead monarch's wishes didn't, and still don't, have any legally binding value, merely some guidance to be followed or ignored. Gloucester arrived in York on the 21st of April, dressed in mourning with 300 gentry. He bound by oath himself and those present to the new king in a memorial service to his late brother. Despite being a formerly staunch Lancastrian, Buckingham's hatred for the Woodfields outweighed any concerns for loyalty, and he hoped that an incumbent Gloucester protectorship would allow him to recuperate his Bohun inheritance, which had been denied to him. Buckingham made to rendezvous with Richard at Northampton, set on intercepting the king on his way to London. Meanwhile, back in London, the Queen and Dorset summoned a council of the realm. This was a perfectly legal and expected practice in a minority. What was not perfectly accepted was the Queen conveying the council as though she was already regent, a position Parliament held the sole authority of approving. Having ruffled a few feathers at the nature of the gathering, when Hastings objected to Gloucester's absence, Dorset proclaimed arrogantly that, We are so important that even without the king's uncle, we can make and enforce our decisions. This duly prompted a great deal of arguing, and as such little progress was made for several days. Hastings even went so far as to claim the queen and her family's base blood made them unfit to serve as regents. The debate of Gloucester assuming the regency became bogged down in what sort of powers he might be granted, and what would be withheld from him. Hastings championed Edward IV's will, whilst Dorset envisaged the Duke as a figurehead to preside over a council. Edward IV had assumed his son would attain his majority on his 14th birthday. Despite this point being only 18 months away, the Woodvilles were determined to prevent a Ricardian protectorship for even this period of time. Clearly, the Woodvilles were as afraid of Gloucester as Gloucester was of the Woodvilles. The situation this created was that of an inevitable conflict. Whether this would take place in the field or at the heart of government, one side had to be eliminated to stabilise the government of England. On the 30th of April, Edward V, Rivers and the 2,000 men accompanying them set out along Watling Street on their way to London. On the 2nd of May, Richard arrived at Nottingham. An envoy from Buckingham informed Gloucester of the Duke's plans. An alliance was now in place between the two Dukes. The young king and Lord Rivers arrived at Northampton on the 29th of April 1483. At the very same time, the Duke and Buckingham were meeting on the northern side of the town. The King was, after Richard Grey arrived from the capital to hasten their approach, moved 14 miles to Stony Stratford. Rivers and Grey then rode back to meet Gloucester, informing the King to depart with or without them the next morning. Richard and Buckingham received Rivers at an inn in Northampton, hiding their frustrations as to the King's moving. Putting on a show of amicability, Richard cordially discussed with Rivers the proceedings to take place and was duly informed that the supreme power Richard felt he was due was to be denied him. He was to serve as a figurehead on the King's Council, whilst the Woodvilles were to be entrusted with the care and education of the King until such a time as he could rule of his own accord. What Richard did next was, after Rivers' retirement to bed, plot to seize the King's person the very next day. 
guards were positioned on every road from Northampton to prevent the king being forewarned of their move. Before moving to take the king, Richard had Rivers arrested on the grounds he had turned the king against the rightful protector of the realm and for attempting to deny him the office entrusted to him by his late brother. Then, with most of his men, Richard charged down the road to Stony Stratford to meet the king. Edward received the pair joyfully, but when they placed the fault for their father's death at the feet of the Woodvilles, on account of them ruining the king's health, as well as a plot to kill them, the boy was extremely sceptical. After all, these were the young king's immediate family. When Grace buttered some protest back at the two dukes, they arrested him before the king. Edward, undoubtedly frightened by the whole ordeal, surrendered himself to the care of his uncle. Richard even went so far as to order the 2,000-man Woodville escort to stand down and go home. Gloucester put to parchment what had transpired and assured the council in London that the King of England had been rescued from those who meant him harm. Elizabeth Woodville was now forced to contemplate that with no warning, her family's power and influence, deriving solely from her marriage, were at an end. No matter who they petitioned for support, the magnates were against them, and they were unable to rise with arms to challenge Gloucester. Taking with her her other son and the rest of her children, the Queen fled to Sanctuary in Westminster Abbey. On the 2nd of May, Gloucester dispatched Rivers, Grey and Vaughan to be imprisoned at three of his northern castles. Gloucester then began to coordinate the officers of state and put them into safe and supportive hands. All of these actions were illegal, as Richard had neither been appointed nor confirmed in his protectorship. Strictly speaking, these were acts of tyranny, and many at the time saw it this way. On the morning of the 4th of May, the King, escorted by Gloucester and Buckingham, arrived in London. Gloucester summoned the magnates to swear fealty to their King, and all did so reverently. Gloucester controlled the King and the Council, calling it on the 10th of May. It was decided that Edward should reside in the Royal Apartments at the Tower of London. On this same day, Gloucester was invested as protector and defender of the realm, entrusted with the government of the realm as well as with the tutelage and oversight of the king's most royal person. These powers were unprecedented and reflect the concern for the security and stability of the new king's regime. The king was now to be crowned on the 24th of June 1483. Despite the vast power Gloucester had just been entrusted with, there were only six weeks in which this power would be legal. Following the coronation, all anticipated a return to conciliar rule from the minor king, before he assumed powers himself in a few years' time. Though to many Richard's actions may have raised some doubts, to all intents and purposes, he had acted drastically and swiftly to secure his position for a matter of weeks. With his position established, Gloucester swiftly turned to convict those he had arrested. But the council opposed him. Not only was there absolutely no evidence to support Richard's claim that they had attempted to ambush or kill him, but even if there had been, he was neither regent nor lord protector at the time. The crimes could never have been treason. As the council grew ever more restive as to the Queen's sanctuary and the Woodville's imprisonment, Gloucester could see his options closing. For though he was almost guaranteed to head the regency council that would supersede his protectorship upon his nephew's coronation, Gloucester knew that young Edward's majority was only a few years away. In that majority, Gloucester was sure that Edward's loyalties would lie firmly and unmovingly with his mother and the Woodville family, placing his position and even his life in jeopardy. Gloucester was well positioned to aim for the crown. The Londoners were at present well enamoured with the Duke, and he could boast a large and loyal following in the North. Though it is hotly contested when Richard turned his ambitions to the throne, from the 10th of May 
It is without doubt that he viewed becoming king as a prerequisite to keeping his life, and began to initiate a coup. On the 13th of May, a parliament was called in the king's name, and summoned all the peers of the realm to meet three days after the coronation. Gloucester also began to reward those who had assisted him thus far. The Earl of Northumberland was granted several officers, and a few days later Lord Howard was appointed Chief Steward of the Duchy of Lancaster. Lord Howard had fought for Edward at Towton, Barnet and Tewkesbury, but he wished to once again style his family as the Dukes of Norfolk, a title he was not compensated for by Edward. By throwing his weight behind Richard, Howard hoped to fulfil this ambition. Buckingham was also guaranteed considerable rewards for his service. So rewarded was Buckingham that he was almost able to enact sovereign power in Wales. Not only does this reflect Buckingham's raw ambition, but it is a sign of how desperately Richard needed him on side. Though a man who had helped him greatly, Lord Hastings did not receive the same level of reward. Hastings had been adamantly clear that he was utterly loyal to Edward V, and thus Richard decided to reward Buckingham, as he had already planned to depose the king. On the 13th of June, Richard had summoned the council to the Tower of London. To make what he was about to do easier, he had split the council. The other half were meeting at Westminster to finalise coronation plans. Hastings was escorted to the Tower by Sir Thomas Howard, son of the Lord Howard so integral to Richard's plans. As Richard entered at 9am, he smiled warmly and bid the councillors sit. He turned to John Morton and asked if some of his fine strawberries from his residence at Ely might be sent to him, and the doctor hastened to do so. Then, leaving the councillors to their usual work, Gloucester got up and left the council chamber. Over an hour later, Richard returned looking apprehensive. He asked Hastings to what end someone who had plotted against the protector should meet. Rather taken aback, Hastings replied vaguely that some appropriate punishment would be found if something had happened. Then Richard exploded. He accused Hastings, Morton, Rotherham, Stanley and Oliver King of conspiring with Elizabeth Woodville against his authority and his life. When Richard was finished with his accusations, he cried, Treason! and smashed his fist into the table, at which armed guards from all sides entered and arrested Hastings and the others. Hastings was executed just minutes after his arrest, without trial by his peers. It was a blatant act of tyranny, and it ushered in a new phase of rule by fear. It was only for the intervention of the University of Oxford that Morton was saved from death, instead being imprisoned by Buckingham in the Welsh marches. On the 16th of June, Richard cowed the council into forcibly removing the Queen's second son from sanctuary, but in the end the show of arms and the careful words of the Archbishop and of Buckingham allowed for a peaceful transfer of guardianship. Gloucester now had both the male heirs of Edward IV in hand, and had completely neutralised the Woodvilles, as well as removing almost all of those who had opposed him. It was believed that Gloucester had the two boys moved from the royal apartments into the Garden Tower. Ominously, this tower was later to be renamed the Bloody Tower in 1597. But it is most likely that Richard had them confined at the innermost, most secure parts of the original Norman Keep. Gloucester then petitioned for the Earl of Warwick, a boy of eight and the son of the late Duke of Clarence, to come to London to be taken into the care of his maternal aunt. It is likely that this move was motivated by the fact that upon killing the two princes, this boy would still hold a closer claim than Richard, and so too he had to go. The king was due to be crowned in a matter of days, and following that, open parliament, a parliament for which lords and peers were arriving in great numbers. Gloucester therefore had to act quickly if he was to succeed. Gloucester's plan was this. 
he would declare Edward V and his brother Richard of York unfit to inherit the crown. With Warwick barred from the throne by his father's attainder, Gloucester would be next in line for the crown and would demand to be acknowledged as the rightful king. Since Edward V's coronation would include an act of recognition by the magnates, Gloucester only had until the 22nd of June to stake his claim. By the 17th of June, Richard cancelled the Parliament and some point before the 21st of June had postponed the coronation indefinitely. Unfortunately, we have no idea on what grounds Gloucester did this, but it's clear he left the magnates residing in London baffled. Soon, though, everyone got their answer. On Sunday the 22nd of June, the date of Edward V's coronation, a man in the service of Richard gave a sermon. Mancini recalls that they preached that, in the face of decency and all religion, that the progeny of King Edward should be instantly eradicated, for neither had he been a legitimate king, nor could his issue be so. Edward IV, said they, was conceived in adultery, and in every way was unlike the late Duke of York. But Richard, Duke of Gloucester, who altogether resembled his father, was to come to the throne as the legitimate successor. Whilst London was in uproar, Earl Rivers was executed. On the 25th of June, the peers were summoned to Westminster. A petition was put before them by the Duke of Buckingham, in which Richard's claim was pressed. It went on at length of the misrule of the Woodvilles, the bastardy of Edward, and the inability for Warwick to claim the titles. Buckingham dramatically, and rather pathetically vain on Richard's part, lamented that the Duke of Gloucester, the only remaining candidate in Buckingham's address, was not willing to take the crown unless pressed to do so by the peers. The Lords, in fear of a fate like Hastings, the alliance between Gloucester and Buckingham, and of Richard's extensive military backing, unanimously voted to declare Richard the King. The Lords and the appropriate dignitaries rode from London to Baynard's Castle, where Richard had removed himself so as to appear ignorant of the plan. It was also the same place Edward IV was residing before he ascended to the throne. The same day the petition was put before Richard, he rode to London and enthroned himself on the King's bench in Westminster Hall. He took the Sovereign's oath and was duly anointed as King. Margaret Beaufort attended Richard III's coronation on the 6th of July 1483. Her husband Stanley had been present at the council meeting at the Tower, where Richard had made his arrests. He managed to make his peace with Richard by agreeing to support him, and in doing so was appointed High Constable of England, and would later be made a Knight of the Order of the Garter. In a stroke, Stanley had become, along with Buckingham, Norfolk, formerly the Lord Howard, and Northumberland, one of the four peers Richard depended on. After the pair attended the coronation, neither ever saw the young princes. No one did. In fact, it was already assumed by many that they were already dead at the hands of their tyrannical uncle. Like all England, Margaret Beaufort would have worried about the former king and his brother. Mancini, by this point, also reckoned that the pair were already dead, and he states that a great many Englishmen would burst into tears at the mention of Edward V. Often Forgotten is a plot by four Londoners who plan to set parts of the city on fire and amid the ensuing chaos, free the two boys. These would-be rescuers were later accused of being in correspondence with Jasper Tudor. These actions are key indicators of so many contemporaries' reaction to Richard's usurpation, as the crown was both hereditary and sacred. What he had done was seen not just as theft, but also blasphemy. He was a criminal of the highest order. Sir Thomas More has recounted the story, and while some of the details may be questioned, 
it is widely accepted as perhaps the most accurate tale of what happened to the young boys. The constable of the tower had refused to kill the boys, so Richard entrusted the job to one of his household men, Sir James Tyrell. The constable gave the keys to the tower to Tyrell for the night, with the actual murder being carried out by a professional thug named Miles Forrest and by Tyrell's horsekeeper, John Dighton. It is supposed by Moore, and most of the sources, that the princes were smothered to death in their beds. Moore adds that the two were buried at the bottom of a staircase, and in 1674, two workmen discovered a wooden chest with the bones of two boys of the right age. It has been challenged that these bones are not those of the princes in the tower, and to this day no one can confidently say how they were killed, when, or where they ended up. But by the autumn of 1483, most Englishmen believed that the two sons of Edward IV were well and truly dead, and what everyone was certain of was that it was their uncle who was behind it. Richard even went so far as to circulate some of these rumours himself, in a bid to make the people accept his kingship on the grounds there were no alternatives. But Richard had failed to account for John Morton, Margaret Beaufort, and her son across the channel, Henry Tudor. Next week, we'll be analysing Henry Tudor's rise and his victory over Richard III. We'll chart his progress from Brittany in 1483 to his life-changing day on Bosworth Field on the 22nd of August, 1485. Thank you for listening to this episode of House of Tudor. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe or follow and check out our Instagram page, House of Tudor Podcast, where you'll find plenty of updates on the behind-the-scenes work going on into the series, as well as important announcements and teasers for upcoming content. Thank you for listening.